Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 442 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Alan Jenkins speaks with John Greening about winning the Forward Prize, the moment he knew he would spend his life writing poetry, and the role of loss and death in his work. Alan Jenkins was born in 1955 in Kingston-upon-Thames and studied at the University of Sussex, which he's described as a happy experience. He spent much of his life in London, working at the Times Literary Supplement, where he was deputy editor and poetry editor, until 2020, when he left to work on a new poetry collection and a study of H. Phelps Putnam. His first book, In the Hot House, appeared in 1988 from Chateau, who published most of his full collections, and was enthusiastically received, Edmund White in the Sunday Times, suggesting that he'd rewritten Meredith's Modern Love with Verlaine's pen. It was followed in 1990 by Greenheart, and four years later, Harm, which won the Forward Prize for Best Collection. Its successor, The Drift, described by Caroline Duffy as a powerful, erudite, sexy collection, was a Poetry Book Society choice and was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize. Soon after this, Alan Jenkins was made a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. There was an American selected, and in 2005 came A Shorter Life. The same year, he received a Chomley Award. Clutag Press brought out his collection Revenants in 2013. The year after came Paper Money Lyrics from Grey Suit Press, one of several chapbooks he's published in recent years. His preoccupation with the sea led to Marine, a collaboration with John Kinsella, published by Enith Tharman in 2015. White Nights, a volume chiefly of translations from the French, appeared in America in 2018. As editor, he's produced selections of Peter Redding and most recently of Ian Hamilton. He's taught creative writing in America and Paris and was poet-in-residence at St John's College, Cambridge. Alan Jenkins is RLF Writing Fellow at City University of London. Well, nice to be chatting to you, um, Alan, here in London. Where and how did the poetry begin, would you say? I can date it almost precisely to the my third year uh, at school, at secondary school. It was a hot summer afternoon in a rather kind of airless classroom and uh, the English master read the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, T.S. Eliot. And for some, in some extraordinary way, I, this is going to sound probably mad, but I kind of knew what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I knew what my life was for. In some way, I wanted to do that. I don't mean I wanted to rewrite Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock word for word, like a character out of uh, Borges or something, but I wanted to, I wanted to write poems, uh, and I wanted to ever since. Now, I know a lot of teenagers decide at some point that they want to write poems, and it's usually because of heartache or problems with their parents or one, you know, one aspect of teenage misery or another. But I, I wanted to do it from that moment and never stopped wanting to do it. Uh-huh. Uh, the wanting changed and the understanding of what, I, what it is that I wanted to do changed, but not the, actual, not the idea that I somehow you know, was going to write poems and that was what I was going to do with my life. Whatever else happened and whatever else I did with my life, I was going to do that. Uh-huh. So, you know, it, it, in a way, that 
it was an extraordinary feeling because life was sort of solved for me. I, it yeah. sounds again, it sounds a bit crazy, <clears throat> but so many of my friends really not not just not at that point because I think very few of us had started thinking about it at that age. But later on, when I got to university, and uh, you know, I was doing my university course surrounded by people who hadn't got a clue what they wanted to mm. do or what they were going to do when they left university. But I knew, you know, I'd known for years what I was going to do. It all seemed to make things very, very clear to me that I was going to write poems. I don't mean I was going to be a poet, no, whatever no. that means, but I was going to write poems. And so everything else, whatever else happened, was just going to be a kind of cover story. Did you ever tell the teacher that had that effect on you? The, the teacher I did. Many years later, I ran into him, <clears throat> um, of all places, in Brighton. I'd gone down to Brighton for the day, long after I left university, where... You know, I lived in Brighton while I was at university at Sussex. Uh, but I'd gone back to Brighton because it was a beautiful day or something, and I'd gone to get some sea air. And who should I run into but this chap? Charles Potter was his name, Charlie Potter. He isn't the same one who appeared... There's a, 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 quite a recent poem, uh, a, birthday, a birthday poem. Uh, yes, poem. he is... He, teacher yes, lines, lines for a Birthday. Yeah, it's a wonderful poem. Yeah. Uh, and he is the teacher in that. Ah, he, he's, I, I, sort of Dante-esque, as was yeah, being spoken I, to. By. Well, a little bit. Um, yeah. I, I've... Uh, yes, he he just returns in, in that poem in, in a, as a sort of embodied spirit of, of teaching. And, you know, I've, I've, I've altered... I haven't tried to reproduce... Uh, you know, I haven't tried to characterise him or, or make him exactly as he was in the poem. But he... I've tried to give him, I suppose what I've tried to express in that poem via him is what he gave to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, I guess I ran into him on the prom at, at, at Brighton and I, and Charlie, you know, we greeted each other. He remembered me, he remembered who I was. And he said, oh, I've seen you, you've, uh, you've uh, been working at the TLS. And I said, yes, I have, that's right. And I said, more importantly to me anyway, I've been writing poems and publishing them for years and uh, it's all down to you. He looked a bit startled. <laughs> anyway, anyway, as you want. I don't know whether he then felt, oh my gosh, I wish that hadn't happened or what. Mm. What what tends to move you to poetry? People, places, books, uh, ideas? Dot ideas. Yeah. Uh, I can rule that one out. Um, I don't think really I've, I've ever thought of poems as either dependent on or a useful way of conveying ideas as such, what I tend to think of as ideas. Indeed, there's a wonderful story that you probably know, or some of your listeners may know, um, about uh, the French poet Mallarmé, the 19th century poet Mallarmé, who was very, very friendly with, with the painter Degas, Edgar Degas. And uh, Degas and Mallarmé would have, you know, get together quite regularly. And at one time, Degas came round to see, uh, to see Mallarmé uh, in his apartment. And uh, as they were chatting about this and that, Degas sort of said just sort of more or less out of nowhere. Oh, Mallarmé, tell me, have you had any good ideas for poems lately? And Mallarmé said, my dear, my dear Degas, poems aren't made with ideas, they're made with words. Now, that, it, it, it sounds like a very simplistic and <clears throat> obvious thing, but, but, you know, to me, it, it was all important because it chimed with exactly the way I feel about the writing of poems. It starts and ends with words, uh, with a phrase, with a, a, a tune. Yeah. Uh, if you I call it that, a tune in my head that is made by words, not notes. Uh, 
but that I know I have to find words for that particular tune until it's gone away, until I've done it, until it's on, until the words are on the page, and the tune is on the page. While it's in my ear or in my head, yeah. I have to do something about it. And sometimes the tune will attach itself to, as you said, a person or a, or a place, certainly. Uh, more importantly, I think for me, a memory, yes. of, often a remembered person or a remembered place, yeah. or indeed a specific object. An object that suddenly sort of swims up out of out of nothing, out of the unconscious. One or two incidents, do you like? Yes. Your mother slipping into the river, you mentioned oh, yes. a few times. Certainly uh, that incident in particular recurs through the work, uh, you know, through my poems, as I think you've obviously noticed. And there are one or two others, yes. Mm. I mean, that, that actually happened and I was extremely small and my mother and I were w- walking by the river one afternoon in Richmond, as we sometimes did, we often did. I think this was even before I went to school. But even after I started going to school, we would sometimes head over to Richmond. We live not that far from Richmond. Mm. And go over there for a walk by the river on a, on a sunny afternoon, you know, mm. after school. My mother loved it there. Uh, and I loved it there. Uh, and, and you write about it a lot. I write about it a lot. back to the, the, yeah, the, the, the it, Thames it, again. Indeed, again. indeed. It, it's all from that moment when I, when she, you know, when I was so small and I watched her in a kind of frozen horror, mm. slipping down the... It, it was a muddy embankment. And we were, we were walking on what apparently was a safe path. But she must have been distracted or missed her footing because the next thing I knew, she'd let go of my hand. She was holding my hand. She'd let go of my hand and I was frozen on this path watching my mother slipping sort of rather kind of in a panicky way down this muddy-looking embankment towards Mm. the water. And, of course, it was an absolute horror for me. She stopped herself. She was able to grab grab some uh, sort of weeds tough river riverside weeds on the bank and just sort of haul herself back up rather rather awkwardly and dust herself off you know yes, dust yes. herself down as if nothing had happened but I think it was a scary moment for both of us and from that moment on uh, I wasn't to know it of course at that point but the river has always played a very important part mm-hmm. in my life I mean later on it was always been a source of of fun and, and pleasure and a beautiful place to be mm-hmm. as a as of when I was a boy, you know, I loved it. And then when I was of an age when I could understand how it worked and what you had to do, my father started taking me fishing um, in Twickenham and Teddington, where we fished in those days. Just, just thinking about, you had those two early Chateau books, very distinctive covers they've got in the oh. house and Greenheart. How do you look back um, on those I'm, now? Oh, well, I'm glad you like the covers. I was able to, the Chateau were really fantastically good to me in those Days I was able to choose the covers myself. Right. They, they would actually say, you know, is there anything you've got in mind for the cover yeah. Yeah. of this? And, and in both cases, I had very, very strong <laughs> something in yeah. mind. I knew exactly what I wanted on the covers of those books. And I was lucky enough to be, to, to be able to have them. I think there are, there are poems in there in both books, and particularly in the first book, that I would now, <laughs> you know, it's already, it's what, 25, 30 years mm-hmm. later, and I, I, I wouldn't now try to to do anything about them but I, I wish perhaps that I had maybe written them a little bit differently or 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 maybe perhaps what I'm trying to say is that I wish in some way that I could I I want I still I wanted to write them as it were in, in you know I wanted to do the poems that I wanted to do then but that but knowing what I know now and being able to have and being having that much more skill or a little bit more skill in being able to convey what I hoped or wanted to convey. Mm. I mean, they're very... <clears throat> I would say they were quite rough and ready. Mm. 
and uh, they're quite formal though. I mean, even from the start, there's rhyme and meter in there. Yeah. yeah, there's rhyme, not so much meter. I mean, the, the meters are very, very, very varied, right. variable. I mean, there is some meter. There's, as in a lot of English so-called free verse, in English English free verse, not American free verse, but as in a lot of English free verse, there is a submerged iambic pentameter. There is a submerged iambic iambic beat. Going on, not always pentameter, obviously, because some of the lines are very long, some of them are very short. Um, Edmund White, who you who you mentioned, was very, very, very flattering, nice about the book, um, said to me when he first read them, um, he referred everything to music. Edmund, he, he, you know, music was his is his passion really, and he refers everything to music. And he said, "Oh, you know, you you, you have this way. You you really drop a flat very beautifully," and I. <laughs> <clears throat> I didn't know that I'd been dropping flats, but I, I, I knew what he meant. And, uh, and yes, I, I, this is, I think, what I meant, what I was really talking about when I referred to the tune that I hear yeah. or heard. Uh, it was a very different kind of tune that I yeah. heard in those days. Perhaps that's the kindest thing I can say about myself. I, I heard a different music and I tried to write that music. Yeah. And now it would be a very different kind of music. Yes. Uh, and, and it is a very different kind of music. But I don't think I'm, I'm not as I say, horrified or too ashamed. Yeah. There are one or two poems that I probably wish I hadn't published. I mean, the music apart, um, Michael Hoffman said of your poem, I'm not quite sure when he said this, but he said, you write poetry at a pitch of risk and candour one doesn't often see these days. He, I mean, is he right? And does it become more difficult to do that? He said that about harm. Did he? Right. Um, which was the next book after the, 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 the two uh, we were talking about. Which was my third book, yes. Yeah. That, now that was actually a comment he made about harm, and I think, again, I, I, I was delighted and, and gratified that he'd heard that or seen mm. that, uh, and I was certainly aware that, again, you know, to use this music metaphor, I was hearing a different music mm. when I wrote that collection, and it, it was a, a riskier collection in the sense that I suppose I was just, I felt that I was walking more naked than I had oh, done yeah. before, I yes. was discussing or I was writing about things that were very, very acutely personal to me, uh, you know, that had come more or less straight directly out of my own personal romantic history at that mm. time. Yeats talked about sex and the dead being the only worthwhile subject. Sex and the dead, That yes. may, may apply perhaps to your... Well, <laughs> yes, I, I suppose... Possibly, I, I, in a way, it would apply just as much to my first book, which was yeah. certainly, you know, the death aspect. We took took up the sort of last third or quarter of the book, and all the poems in that part of the book were about my father dying and my yes. father's death, and it wasn't terribly personal. It certainly wasn't autobiographical, although it was, it was thought to be, and I was I was read or, or reviewed anyway as if I had written about my own history, mm. uh, and I hadn't. I'd written a lot about the, the, what I'd noticed going on among my generation, in my generation of young people, which, of course, there was a lot of sexual liberation and there was a lot of, a lot of promiscuous sexual activity in my generation and people, you know, the people I was at school with, the people I was at university with in particular and, and afterwards and the people I first went to work with. I don't mean they were all, you know, jumping in and out of each other's beds, but the, sexual liberation was something that I, at the time, thought of as... A kind of, I mean, it was clearly a boon. Uh, it was clearly a plus uh, in so many ways. And I, I always thought of it as something that my generation had been given as a sort of sop. Uh, you know, be, we, we had been given sex 
so that we didn't get politics. Uh, and suddenly, suddenly you could have everything, uh, in, including a lot of fun. Yeah, you actually have fun with the poetry, even when you're writing about bleak things. That's one of the things I like about your work. I mean, with the rhymes, you know, like the, yes. the rhymes are very playful, and, and it's, it's an important part of poetry. It should be playful, I think, isn't it? Harm also enabled you to buy a boat, I understand. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, busy. Yeah, Tell yeah. us about that. It, to my astonishment and delight, won a prize. Mm. You mentioned it, and you got the, won a forward prize, and the forward prize yeah. for best collection that year. Uh, and the prize then was, to me, the very uh, handsome sum of £10,000. I was able to do actually two things when I was given the forward prize. I was able to put a, a, a deposit down on a tiny flat and buy a share, not buy the whole boat, but I, 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 I bought a boat with a friend. Seems appropriate because there's a very sort of maritime preoccupation in, yes. in, in the book. Yes, I'm not a brilliant sailor, but I've always loved actual boats. I, I, I just love the feel of them and I love yeah. being on them. And that comes out in the writing and it continues into the next book, The Drift 2000. Yes, imagery. Yeah, probably but, even more so. I, yes. think I sort of let go on the boat thing in that. But moment. there's also a kind of sea change, I think, in the, in the writing in a sense. Is, is it these big formal structures and there's a kind of yes. depth of seriousness, I think. Um, yes. Not that they weren't serious before, but there's a, well, do seem to go to a different level. Very um, nice of you to say that. I um, hope that may be true. Yeah, and there's lots of family in there. Yes. There's, there's some lovely poems, particular favourites of mine, one called Patience, about your grandmother. And that wonderful poem, A Short Straw. Could you tell us a bit about that? The Short Straw um, is about my closest university friend, uh, a man called Keith McCulloch, who I met on the very first day I was at university. Mm you know, feeling a bit shy and sort of out of things and wondering how it was, everything was going to work. And, well, you know, I was in a queue for a coffee or something in the, in the common room uh, at our, our, our college, our school, and I got chatting to this chap who seemed like... Uh, let's say he, he looked not like the, co the common run of people who were milling about in the common room at that time, you know, with all the sort of hippie hair and the, and the velvet... Uh, gear and the uh, and all that sort of 70s, the early 70s look of young people. Keith was a rather f formally dressed and sort of much neater, neater kind of tenue uh, with short hair and a very, very sharp and I would say almost hilarious but, but very pointedly ironic manner thing and I just took to him and he must have taken to me because we, we became, I think almost inseparable we, we, all sh we all shared a house and uh, it was a, those were very happy times for me because mm. I, I felt that I was learning uh, you know I was learning as much from Keith in some ways in very deep ways as I was from any of my tutors I don't mean that uh, yeah, as insultingly to my tutors who I think mm. were absolutely wonderful and I look mm. back on them with extreme respect and love for some of them mm. uh, but uh, I was learning a lot from Keith too just mm. by being around him and talking to him and uh, and that comes over in the, in the poem <clears throat> which is a, another elegy of course because he died uh, he died soon he died very 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 young yeah, yeah. 47 or 48 yeah. is an absolutely horrible yeah. incurable disease and the title is, is quotation something he said he yeah. said when he got his diagnosis I was told this his wife told a friend and the friend told me um, that he'd been given this awful awful prognosis I just he told he was going to die well, certainly before he was 50 I think he was probably about 45 when he mm. discovered he had this illness and he said oh it looks as if I've been given the short straw mm. 
And it sort of carries on actually into your next collection, which is called A Shorter Life. A Shorter Life. That's yes. in 2005. Yes. I think you said that was your favourite collection. Yes. Um, again, elegies. Focus on your mother, especially, that, that, that yes. riverfall. And as a terrifying poem about Ian Hamilton. Well, he, Ian was a, a sort of very, very significant person in my life. I mean, a really profoundly important person in my life in sort of quite shadowy background ways. He was the first living poet whom I had read in a little selection of his poems at the back of that very influential anthology, The New Poetry, the Alvarez, uh, A. Alvarez anthology. I devoured the book. You know, I read all the poetry in that book with, with some absorption. And I really absolutely loved the, the poems at the back, right at the back of the book. I think he was actually the very last poet in the book, included in the book. The Visit, was it? That was his big book. The wasn't Visit it? was his first book. That mm. didn't actually come out till 71. Oh, did it not? Right. Mm. Uh, but the poems in it had been appearing very, very gradually and sparingly mm. throughout the 60s. And by the mid 60s, he was a very in surprisingly influential figure. You know, he edited this magazine called The Review, which was famous at the time for its sort of stern, stern judgments and, and extremely severe standards for what uh, Ian and his, his cohort of fellow editors wanted poetry to be, and they were pretty dismissive about people they didn't rate, you know. So he, he, Ian had sort of made himself, I mean, partly for, through sheer acuity, he was mm. a very acute critic. Yes. It was his criticism that really, I think, Absolutely. got him noticed yeah. before, long before his poetry. Yeah. Uh, and he was a very acute, and I say sometimes very severe, mm. critic, and... This, I think, was felt to be a very important element at the time of, of poetry, poetry activity, poetry culture, if you like. So when he started publishing poems too, I think it was inevitable that he was going to be, some people were going to be just as harsh about him as he had been with them. And then there were others, of course, who saw in his poetry a great deal of what his criticism had really been sort of aiming for and struggling to establish as a kind of standard for poetry. Brevity. Intensity, control, mm. a certain amount of wit, mainly feeling, deep feeling, but, but, but accompanied by a, a, a deal of technical control. Yeah. Now, these were sort of things that I realised were important to me in poetry long before I was you know, capable of realising it, if you see what I mean. Instinctively, I'd been looking for these things. I'm sure partly because I'd been reading Ian's criticism. You know, I'd read some of Ian's essays and... Uh, these were things that I realised that I wanted in poetry as well. And then when I read these little poems of his at the back of the New Review, I not only found those qualities in them, I found them very memorable, very haunting poems. They haunted me. So you, you have this elegy for him in The Shorter Life, um, where you're waiting for him and he doesn't appear to see yes. because he's in hospital or, or died. Yes. Going back to the, to the elegy... So you've written a lot of elegy. What is it about the elegy that, that appeals? It's a, sort of, it's a very strong tradition in, in, in English poetry particularly, isn't it? Look, I mean, to be a bit personal about it, when, when a poem is, is sort of brewing for me or when it, I feel that there's a need, I want to need to write a poem, it's usually because of something I've lost. I mean, Ian... I'll say a little bit more about Ian, if you don't mind, because he, uh, his criticism was important to me and his poems were very haunting to me. But then I got to know him, and I got to know him really by the sort of accident of going to work at the TLS. We got on, and I, I was in awe of him, but at the mm. same time, 
I mean, just extremely taken with him as a person, as a, as a companion, a lunch companion. And he obviously didn't, you know, he wasn't too alarmed by me. And, and we started meeting on a pretty regular basis. And we have drinks in the evening and sometimes dinners and lunches went on over the years. Until that very, very, very last sad occasion, yes, when we had arranged to have dinner one evening. And I went to the appointed place, our usual place, and waited and waited and waited, and he didn't turn up. Sure enough, I, I eventually I came home. I realised that he wasn't going to show, came mm. home, and then it was only an hour or so later that I got a phone call from his wife, now a widow, to say that he had died that very evening, that very night. He had been taken rather suddenly into hospital that afternoon and had died the same night. Oh, it's a very fitting tribute, the poem you, you wrote. Um, uh, you've answered my question really, about time at the TLS, because obviously it, it, it contributed. I was going to ask, did, does it, did it contribute to or interfere with your writing life? It obviously did contribute to it, but, but yes. any, any day job is, is, is a problem if you're trying to write, of course. Uh, especially <coughs> if you're surrounded yeah. by books. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, yes and no. I mean, uh, to write poems, you do not need to sit all day. And I don't mean, you know, physically, you don't need to do that. Obviously, you don't need to do that. But I don't understand this business of having all that time and freedom. Hanging around the park as like it is. Hanging around the park. You know, having all the time and freedom in the world. Who needs that to be able to write something? I think the opposite has helped me, that not having all that much time and feeling a pressure in the opposite sense of, of having to kind of get something down or get something done when it was so pressing that it had to happen. I want to leave time to talk about revenants, which is came some years after A Shorter Life, but you suggested to me that uh, it's important to this, this book, I mean, a very, very fine yeah. book from Clutag Press. Much concern with Englishness, it seemed to me. Yes. Which, uh, As you said, it was published by Clutag, which is a very, very delightful set-up in Oxford, run by a poet called Andrew McNeely. And he'd, he'd done a pamphlet of mine, he'd done a chapbook of mine called The Lost World. And he just, I think, over a drink on one occasion said, look, you know, would you consider doing a, proper, a whole book with us, a you know, more solid sort of thing? And I said, well, I'd like to, because some of the poems that were in the chapbook have, I wasn't necessarily expecting them to, but they had sort of had taken on a bit of a life of their own. And I'd gone on writing poems in a similar vein, which is very much that, the vein of Englishness. And I think I'd been trying to look at questions of Englishness as a as a kind of both a myth a literary myth if you like uh, or a cultural myth you know I don't think you need to reflect on it too long to sort of realize that a lot of it has been created by England at war the English myths can't do without our sort of military history, our military glories if you see them in that way I, I found this something that I was compelled to to write about. Just want to ask, what about other genres or novels or yes. drama or anything like that? Is that something you, you have produced or...? No, I no, no. Or? I've never produced either a play or a novel. I felt, never fancied my ability to, although I was desperate. Desperate to be involved in some way in the theatre when I was really young. That seemed to just, you know, it sort of fell away a bit, faded away yeah, as of I, when I started writing poems. Okay. It's sometimes been said to me, you know, in, in a friendly and encouraging way, uh, people have said to me over the years, you really ought to write a novel. Your poems are so novelistic. And I think, well, 
It's nice of you to say that because I know you mean to pay me a compliment, but actually you're not paying me a compliment. You're just saying you really only can be bothered to read novels and you don't m- much care about poetry. So I, I, it's a double-edged compliment for me. Finally, do you have a favourite quotation about poetry? Yeah, I, I probably got two or three, but I think the, the, the briefest and the most uh, piercing is uh, something said by, of all people, Jean-Paul Sartre. He said, the, the poet is someone who refuses to use words. That was Alan Jenkins in conversation with John Greening. You can find out more about Alan on the Royal Literary Fund website. And that concludes episode 442, which was recorded by John Greening and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode 443, Jamie Lee Searle tells Anne Morgan about unpicking books layer by layer, overcoming the fear of writing and the practicalities of the creative life. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk Thanks for listening.